Thank you for tuning in to Emmanuel Faith Community Church. We hope you enjoy today's sermon. One of our elders sent me a message uh, last night that said, since we turned the clocks back an hour, that means you get an extra hour to preach today. So uh, I received that. I received that and hope you brought a snack. So um, hey, I'm just kidding. Welcome. So grateful you're here. My name is Ryan. I'm one of the pastors. Uh, if you're joining us online, welcome to you also. Um, the date was October 7th, 2003. And my guess is that you may not be able to remember what happened on that day, but I would also assume if you lived in California at the time, you probably remember when this happened. October 7, 2003 was the day that you, and I say that because I didn't live in California at the time, so I cannot claim this as my own, was the day that you elected Arnold Schwarzenegger as your governor. I mean, who would have thought it, right? I was in Colorado and I can remember thinking, man, like, like Arnold, <laughs> the governor, right? Like, oh, bodybuilder extraordinaire. I mean, to think of like kindergarten cop as your governor. And I mean, maybe the, the pinnacle of all of his work, the Terminator going to bat on your behalf as call it Californians as your governator. I mean, <laughs> bravo. Like who, who saw that one coming? I mean, we have a history of springboarding people from the silver screen into public office. I mean, see Ronald Reagan, but this one felt a little bit different. And here's what I want to suggest to you today, that having an unexpected governor is one thing. Having an, an unexpected God is a completely other thing. Having an unexpected governor is one thing. Having an unexpected king is another thing. And all throughout John's gospel, we have seen Jesus use this phrase, my time has not yet come. My time has not yet come. At one point, there was a group of people that wanted to make him king, and he actively resisted it. He slid out of their midst, and he disappeared. But in this passage that we're going to look at today, Jesus will say the opposite. My time has come. He's not only allowing them to make him king, but it seems as though he's in the background choreographing the entire event. He sets the whole thing up. And I want to suggest to you that as unexpected as Schwarzenegger was as governor, Jesus is way more unexpected as our king. If you have your Bible, would you open with me to John chapter 12. John chapter 12, and we're going to be introduced today to the unexpected king. In so many ways, John chapter 12 is the uh, hinge point in John's gospel. 
Verse, chapters 1 through 11 really serve as what we might call the book of signs. It's Jesus doing miracles. It's showing people who he was based on the actions that he was doing. And then in chapters 12 through 21, many call it the book of glory. It's where we see Jesus exalted. Now, last week, uh, Pastor Lundy and Pastor Savon did a great job teaching us and walking us through the story of um, dinner that was thrown in Jesus's honor. It was thrown by Lazarus and by his sisters, Mary and Martha. You might remember that Martha is serving and getting dinner ready. Lazarus is chilling and sitting at the feet of Jesus. And then Mary comes in and she anoints Jesus with perfume that just fills the whole house. And today we're going to read what happens on that next day. Today we're going to read about the entrance of an unexpected king that was prophesied hundreds of years earlier. John chapter 12, starting in verse 12. Are you there? Wonderful. Here we go. It says this. The next day, so the day after that dinner, I want to get that phone because we're going to... There we go. The next day... The large crowd had come to the feast and they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. Now the feast that people are gathering for is the feast of Passover. It was what they called a pilgrim feast. So people from all over Israel traveled to Jerusalem to celebrate what was going on. Verse, oh sorry, verse 13. So they took the branches of palm and they went out and they met him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Now, this is all giving us context for the king walking into Jerusalem to be the unexpected king. And there's three things happening that I want you to see here. And you may just want to jot these three things down. First, they go out to meet him with what? Palm branches. Yeah, and if this were Palm Sunday, we would have had kids that came down and reminded us what that might have looked like. But the interesting thing about palm branches is that palm branches had a history in Israel. A few weeks ago, we learned about the Feast of Dedication, where the Israelites would celebrate the taking back of their temple and the sort of reauthorizing of distinct worship in that temple. Now, they needed to kick the Greeks out in order to take it back. They needed to kick out Anachias Epiphanes, And when they kicked him out, their leaders, the Maccabees, uh, were ushered into Jerusalem and they were greeted with, any guesses? Palm branches. So they waved palm branches. This is 165 BC. They waved palm branches, welcoming the Maccabees back into Jerusalem. Do you think that maybe, just maybe, the people welcoming Jesus have the same story in mind? Everybody nod your head yes. Yeah, they have some expectations of what Jesus was going to do. Second thing, listen to what they say. They say, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now this is right out of Psalm 118 verse 26. And Psalm 118 was a part of, is a part of what we call the Hallel Psalms. It's a package of Psalms that people would sing all throughout Passover week. Now, the week of Passover, the people of Israel are remembering when they were freed from Israel or from Egypt and allowed to go into wilderness wandering that would eventually lead them into the promised land. 
Do you think that maybe, just maybe, when the Israelites are saying, Hosanna, they have something in mind when they are saying it? Everybody shake your head, nod your head, yes. Yeah, here's the, the psalm. It says, save us, which is Hosanna, Hosanna, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. See, in their minds, Rome is the new Egypt, and they are expecting a new exodus. So you have all of this mashup of things going on. People waving palm branches that have become a nationalistic symbol for the Israelite people. They were a symbol of freedom. They were a symbol of prosperity. So much so that they printed it on their coins. And you have this declaration, Hosanna, God save us. As they're remembering the Passover where God freed them from slavery under Egypt and all of those things are mashed up and then combined into this declaration even the king of Israel. So the one that we are welcoming is our king. And it seems to me that Jesus is choreographing this whole scene. And if you put them all together, I think what you have in so many ways is you have Passover and politics coming into collision. You have this Passover celebration and this Passover feast where they remember religious and political freedom and you have palm branches being waved where they remember we kicked out the Greeks, we freed ourselves from Hellenization and we took back true worship and all of it is converging in the person of Jesus as he walks into Jerusalem and they lay down their coats and they wave their palm branches and they sing their song and they declare that Jesus is king of Israel. Do you think that maybe, just maybe, there were some expectations? Yeah. I think this, this phrase that he's the king of Israel or this title is one that we often struggle with, especially for those of you that have been born and raised like I have in um, a, a democratic republic. Like, like we have elected officials that we choose because we anticipate that they will execute our will. Like we try our best to elect public servants who will do what we want done. And when they don't do what we want done, we do our best to replace them with somebody who will. Can I get an amen? Like that's how things work. This just in. That's not how monarchies work. Monarchies don't work where you try to elect somebody that will execute your will. Monarchies work by imposing the will of the monarch, either the king or the queen. And most of our familiarity with monarchies is either watching The Crown on Netflix or watching Disney movies, right? So, so we don't get it. And we read Jesus as king and we, we think, well, Jesus as president, sure. Not the same thing. Not the same thing. See, the, the funny part is that when we elect officials who don't do what we want, we try our best to remove them because we're unwilling to say whatever you say goes. But that's the way monarchies work. 
you don't get to pray about what the king says. You don't get to process whether or not you like it. You don't get to decide if you want to obey or not. If you're part of the monarchy, you get in line. And I think so much of our wrestling with Jesus as king goes back to we don't really have a category in our minds for that. We assume that Jesus is giving suggestions rather than instructions, and we assume that he's sharing advice rather than giving commands. And I'm here today to tell you that he is king over all. You don't debate what the king says. What he says goes, and that rubs against so much of our Western individualistic, autonomistic endeavors. It just does. And when the early followers of Jesus said that Jesus is our king, what they, they were not just making a doctrinal statement. They were making a statement about how they intended to live their lives. They weren't just calling him God. They were giving him authority over their lives. And here's what I want you to hear today. We do not elect Jesus as king because of what he can do for us. We recognize and receive Jesus as king because we recognize that he is sovereign over us. And those are two very different things. Jesus is the unexpected king who calls for our unhindered surrender. And before you go, I'm all in. I love that. Yes and amen. I just want to let you and us know that the fact that he's unexpected means that he's going to ask some unexpected things from us. It means that not everything Jesus says we're going to necessarily agree with initially. And some of it may even rub against some of our sensibilities. But the question is, Jesus is welcomed into Jerusalem as king. The question we have to wrestle with is, will we welcome him into our lives in the same way? And here's why that's so important, you guys. Here's why that's so important. Because Every good thing Jesus brings hinges on receiving him as king. You can read through the end of John's gospel and you will see Jesus described as a number of things after he is crowned as king. See, we can't have Jesus as savior if we do not have him as king. We cannot have Jesus as friend if we do not first have him as king. We cannot have Jesus as guide if we do not have him as king. We cannot have Jesus as healer if we do not have Jesus as king. But when we receive Jesus as king, we also then receive him as healer, as guide, as friend, and as savior. It's all connected. It's all connected. So here's my question. What does the rule and reign of Jesus as king look like? Why was it so unexpected then? And is it that unexpected also now today? Those are the questions I want us to wrestle with. So as you have your Bible open, let's keep reading in John chapter 12, verse 14. There's four things that I want to point out that are unexpected in the way that Jesus came and the way that Jesus comes and the way that Jesus rules and reigns as king. Verse 14 says this. And Jesus found a young donkey, everybody say donkey, and sat on it just as it's written, 
Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Now, there's so much debate about why Jesus gets a donkey to ride into Jerusalem on as king. Now, traditionally, there were two ways that a king could enter into a new town or city or village. One, they could come on horseback. And horse, coming on horseback was a sign or symbol as if to say, heads are going to roll, war is coming. Okay? Another way a king could come into a city was on the back of a donkey. And if you rode in on the back of a donkey, it was a way of saying, peace. I've come in peace and I've come for peace. That's why Zechariah in the original prophecy um, that was written a few hundred years earlier says, Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So when Jesus goes public with his kingship, he does so and he takes a symbol, an animal, and rides into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey because he is what? Say it with me. He's humble. He's, hum he's the humble king. He's the donkey king. He comes in peace. He comes for peace. He's not going to pick up a sword and slay the Romans. He's not going to overthrow Pilate. He's going after bigger enemies, and he's fighting a battle on an entirely different, different playing field. As king, Jesus' unexpected approach is coming in peace. He's the donkey king in a world that's built on horses, built on bloodshed, built on dominance. He came into a war zone, and instead of carrying a sword, he carries a cross. So here's my question, you guys. What if he enters our life in the same way? What if he enters our life humbly? I don't know about you, but I want a God who's going to make heads roll, metaphorically speaking, on my behalf, right? I mean, I want a God who convinces my wife that I'm right. <laughs> I want a God who convinces my coworkers that my ideas are best. I want a God who makes my investments flourish. I want, I want a God who helps our church grow. I mean, I want to paint John 3.16 under my eyes and go into the game knowing that God is going to help me win. Peace? That's for the birds. I want to win. I want to win. Yeah, dismount the donkey and get on a horse when he come into my life. Jesus? But what if he doesn't come to help you win? What if he comes in peace? What if he comes to defeat your bigger enemies? What if he comes into your life in the same way he came into Jerusalem? Are you starting to sense the rub of this unexpected king? Wait, there's more. Because he's not only unexpected in approach, he's also unexpected in scope. And listen to the way that John draws this out. It says, his disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. Quick time out. I absolutely love that the disciples don't get it initially. I love it because I don't get it oftentimes initially. Does anybody want to say amen? amen? That they're face to face with Jesus and they have to write in hindsight and go, listen, it took us a little bit. <laughs> 
before we recognized what Jesus was doing and what he was saying. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. And I just have to pause and say, you think? I mean, somebody walks out of the grave, you better tell that story, right? You wonder if they went up to Lazarus and they're like, what was it like being dead? And he's like, it was like being dead. And they're like, what was it like to be alive? And then he's like, it was so disappointing. <laughs> like, it was a bummer of a miracle for me, right? But it praise be to God that other people get to hear that story. And certainly, Lazarus walking out of the grave after being dead for four days is evidence that demands a verdict. Can I get an amen? Yeah. So the reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they'd heard the sign that was done. Verse 19. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. They're watching this event take place, waving palm branches, putting their coats down, singing psalms, welcoming Jesus as king, and they're going, oh no, this is going in a bad direction. They're welcoming him as king. They're, they've gone after him. And I've tried to I've tried to process through and, and imagine what is it that the Pharisees are so fearful of? I mean, is it, are they fearful that they're going to lose their position and their power? Probably. Are they, are they fearful that, that, that maybe the way that they've expected things to be are going to be so definitively different that they just don't have a category for it? That they feel like there's something they have to defend rather than get on board with, maybe. Or maybe, maybe the Pharisees see more clearly than anyone else what's actually happening. Maybe they see what's actually going on. See, they expected a king of Israel, but they got a king that the whole world was going after. And Jesus as king seemed to be quite all right with that. It's an unexpected scope. He came for all. He came for all. Now, John makes this clear in his next, what he records next in verse 20. And he says this, he says, Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks... This is connected to the whole world's going after him. Like, like, as if to say, even the Greeks. Now, remember, we just talked about the Greeks, right? Because the Greeks were who the Israelites kicked out of the temple when they took it back and what they celebrated when they were waving palm branches. The Greeks aren't supposed to be here. They're the ones we kicked out. They're the ones we got rid of. To welcome them? is to lose the plot all together. So these Greeks came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, which is a, a, a Gentile portion of Galilee, and, he asked, and they asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip, I love that Philip's like, I need some reinforcements for this one. Let's go get the other, only other disciple with a Greek name, Andrew, and let's both go to Jesus and say, hey, what's the deal here? Are we allowed, are you allowed 
to accept worship, to be declared king, not just by Israelites, but by Greeks also. Is that allowed? It would sort of be like inviting the king of England to come to a 4th of July celebration. Can you do that? Or is it, is it allowed? And the idea that Jesus came for all, I think gives us like warm and fuzzies inside, doesn't it? Like he came as, he came for all, for God so loved the world, right? And we're like, yes and amen, because that includes me. But it also includes them, whoever them is in your mind. It also includes the person who's let you down. It also includes the person who's taken advantage of you. It also includes the person that you want absolutely nothing to do with, that you don't want to work with anymore. It also includes the person that if you were allowed as a Christian, you would pray against. Man, I think on the surface, we think we want a God who came for all, as long as we get to define who's outside of that. So the Jewish leaders have so much consternation because their hope is tied up in a nationalistic triumphalism. See, see, they were hoping for a ruler who would come and make their empire victorious, but Jesus is coming to build a kingdom that's not of this world. So much so that the traditional power structures are going to be flipped on their heads. Like a fisherman might have the same kind of sway and authority as priests. Men and women might be on equal footing. Slaves and free might come together in worship, level ground at the foot of the cross. Oh, 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 and by the way, Jews and Greeks together in one body. Yikes, yikes. Like, are you starting to sense the unexpected nature of this king? It truly changes everything. And friends, his scope has not changed. He still came for all. Have you recognized how much this messes with your prayer life? I mean, I, I personally, I have. Because I've been, like many of you, I've been praying about what's going on over in Israel and just pleading with God. Anybody with me? Yeah. God, please. I've been praying scripture like um, we pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Anybody else been praying Psalm 122 verse 6? Yeah, we pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And everything we hear on our news outlets is choose a side. Are you pro-Israel? Are you pro-Palestine? Choose a side. Who do you support? But what I've recognized is that in praying for the peace of Israel, I'm actually praying for the peace of both sides. I'm not just praying for peace for one. I'm praying for peace of both sides. I find myself praying for both Israelis and Palestinians. I pray for Israelis knowing that God has a special place in his heart for his people and a special plan for them in the eschaton, no doubt. And I find myself praying for the Palestinians knowing that they too are created in the image of God and that he does not want any to perish. 
And I find myself praying for Hamas and Hezbollah, believing that the greatest power in the world is the power of the gospel. And that if God can capture their hearts, then maybe, just maybe, there can be a change in that region that would be a miracle. That's been my prayer. That's been my prayer. And kingdom prayer is riddled with tension that we must engage rather than resolve. Did you know that you are commanded, not a suggestion, a command to pray for your enemies and to bless those who persecute you? If Jesus is king, you don't, need to, you don't get to say, let me pray about that. No, no, we do it. He's king. He reigns over all. And he's called us to follow are you starting to sense how unexpected this king is? He came for all. And then Jesus is going to tell us how he came for all. Verse 23. He says this. The hour has come. So in a, in a gospel filled with my time has not yet come. My time has not yet come. My time has not yet come. Finally, Jesus says, my hour has come for the son of man to be what? glorified. In the Greek, it's the word doxaso. Would you say it with me? And it means to give weightiness to or value to or um, to declare the beauty and majesty of something. The hour has come for me to be glorified. Um, this week, we collectively saw a picture of a group of people being glorified. The Texas Rangers won the World Series, okay? And yes, for all of you Padre fans, that is Bruce Bochy right there wearing a Texas Rangers t-shirt. He could be wearing a Padre shirt, but he's not. So this is a picture of the Rangers being glorified. Their true value was seen. They were the best baseball team of the year. And it was unequivocal it was clear they won and they hoisted the trophy and this is a picture of them being glorified and when Jesus says the time has come for me to be glorified it's not a time where he will hold a trophy over his head it's a time where he will extend his arms on a cross this is the unexpected king who comes and who says my Glory. You will see me glorified most clearly when I am crucified. Jesus says, or he claims, that the place that you see his character on display is through the cross and through the resurrection. This is what God is like. It's an unexpected plan. Death. Now, my guess is that that's not the first time that you've heard that. That Jesus came in order to die. And that his glory is seen in his crucifixion. But my fear is that we've heard it so many times that we no longer hear it. Or we hear it so many times that it no longer, it no longer surprises us or shocks us or it no longer seems unexpected. Uh, Richard Dawkins, the atheist author, wrote and said this. He said, I don't see the Olympian gods or Jesus coming down and dying on a cross as worthy of grandeur. They strike me as parochial. If there is a God, it's going to be a whole lot bigger and a whole lot more incomprehensible. 
a whole lot bigger. That's what we'd expect. A God who comes and dies, sacrificially, lovingly giving his life for others, that's completely unexpected. But where I'd push back against Dawkins is more incomprehensible than the cross? With all due respect, Richard Dawkins, you can't even comprehend it. It does, you don't have a category for it. In fact, Peter didn't have a category for it either. You know that, right? Right after Jesus asked Peter, Peter, who do you say I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. Jesus goes on to tell him and to say, from that time, he began to show his disciples what must happen in Jerusalem and how he would suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and that he must be killed on the third day and raised to life. Peter starts going, wait, Jesus, you're going to die? You're, you're, messiahs don't die. And this is where Peter pulls Jesus aside and gives him a little pep talk. Which, how do you think that went? <laughs> Far be it from you, Lord. That's what Peter said to him. No way. Kings don't die. Messiahs don't die. That's not the way it goes. This shall never happen to you. Listen to what Jesus says in response. He said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Just in case you're wondering, that's not a compliment. <laughs> you're a stumbling block to me, for you do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. You're, you're thinking on one playing field, on one plane, and I am operating on a completely other. And then he tells Peter why he's going, or sorry, he tells the disciples in John chapter 12 why he's going to die. And he says this, verse 24, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. I mean, what a, what a brilliant little parable, one that we still understand today. If a grain of wheat is harvested and then crushed and turned into bread, that little grain of wheat produces just a little bit so that people can be sustained. However, if it's planted in the ground, it can give birth to a bunch of other grains of wheat, and then it can multiply itself. And Jesus is saying, that's exactly true of me and my death. When I go into the ground, it will be to give my life so that other people may find life and may find it abundantly. He says that I might bear much fruit. What's his fruit? Let me ask it a different way. Who's his fruit? We are. We are. His fruit. It's only through his death that we are awakened to new life. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. His blood makes a way for our forgiveness and reconciliation because he pays the penalty of sin and absorbs the wrath of God. Jesus makes a way for us to be restored to our Father and to be called children of the Most High God. He is the kernel that goes into the ground that we might have life and have it abundantly. If you believe it, say amen. Praise the Lord that he became a seed. 
And then maybe in one of the more shocking turns, Jesus says this. He says, and whoever loses his life, whoever loves his life loses it. You want to hold on so tightly. It's actually going to slip right through your hands. And whoever hates his life, denies himself, takes up his cross, values Jesus over all. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Now, is Jesus calling us to some sadomasochistic, self-harm type destructive tendencies? Actually, no, no. He's calling us to give up on the game that we so often play with our lives, where we feel like we have to prove and we have to defend and we have to make sure that we are okay in order to feel like we're loved and to feel like we are enough. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 because I'm the seed, because I've given my life for you, because I've forgiven you, you can let go of needing to define yourself. I've defined you. To make yourself okay, I've made you okay. To make sure that you can produce enough in order to make sure you're right with me, you're forgiven. And Jesus would say, come to me, not trying to hold on so tightly, but surrendering. So what if, what if you don't need to control everything in order to feel safe? What if you don't have to get your way in order to be happy in your marriage? What if your finances don't need to be up and to the right for you to feel secure? What if your future doesn't need to be executed by God exactly to your blueprint to feel content? What, what if failure doesn't need to define you? This is the invitation that Jesus is giving. I became, I became the seed so that you could let go of needing to define your whole life. And then he says, well, so follow me. Follow me, and where I am, there you will be also. It's an unexpected invitation where Jesus would say to everybody who calls him Savior and Lord, follow me. Friends, it's 100% true that Jesus came to atone for sin. Yes and amen. But he also came to be an example for us of how to step into life abundant. See, Jesus' life serves not only as provision for our salvation, but a pattern for our everyday lives. That in letting go and dying to self and living with self-sacrificial love for the sake of others, we actually are awakened to life that we could never have imagined. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote in his great book, The Cost of Discipleship, he said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. That's the way we bear fruit. That's the way we also become a seed in the same pattern as Jesus. He's saying, follow me, follow me. Because if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. This is a great promise from Jesus, isn't it? You want to be where Jesus is? You want, you want intimacy with Jesus? You want to sense Jesus' presence? He says, listen, follow me. 
Serve. Serve your family. Serve your church. Serve your school. Serve in your neighborhood. Serve in your workplace. Serve because then you will be where I am. And then he gives this great promise. And if anyone serves me, the Father will, say it with me, honor him. Man. So I, I, I want to sort of almost push back on Jesus and go, no, 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 no. Come on, Jesus. We're supposed to honor you. You're king. We honor you. You don't honor us. Uh, and Jesus goes, no, no, no. I am eternally the unexpected king where I share my joy with my subjects, where I honor the creatures that I have created, where those who surrender to me as king and live in my unexpected seed-like way actually get to taste my love and my joy and my good, not just now, but for all eternity. See, friends, absolute surrender is the pathway to eternal honor, and that is Jesus's word, not mine. Jesus's word, not mine. There's a number of, of stories about crusaders who were going off to war to fight in the crusades. And so many of them would get baptized right before they went out. And they would get baptized in full armor and all of their gear. But the stories go that as these crusaders would be dunked under the water, they would often hold their arm up with their sword outside of the water. As if to say, Lord, you, you can have every other part of me but not this part, but not this part. And I think so many of us, we live in the same way. Like, Lord, like you, can have, you can have most of me, but I'm just gonna keep this part for myself. I'm gonna keep my family for myself. I'm gonna keep my work for myself. I'm gonna keep my body for myself. I'm gonna keep my sexuality for myself. I'm gonna keep my finances for myself. Like baptize most of me, but not all of me. And what Jesus is saying is that we will either, we will either follow him as king with our whole life or we don't follow him at all. We don't get to pick and choose. It's an invitation to unhindered surrender with the promise attached to it of eternal abundance. Yeah, he's an unexpected king with an unexpected approach of peace, an unexpected scope. He came for all, even the ones you don't wanna go to, he came for. An unexpected plan, he came to die, to give his life for you. And an unexpected invitation, will you follow in my and every time we take of this bread and drink of this cup, we reaffirm our devotion and our surrender to that unexpected King. So Thank you for listening to our service. We'd love to have you join us in person. For more information about our church and service times, please visit efcc.org. If you would like to support the ministries of Emmanuel Faith, you can do so at efcc.org give.